Pargo Tuma, you are a poet, you're a theologian, a former leader of Koimila, the peace building community in Belfast, and you're still a member there, and you're a broadcaster. And I'm talking to you today because of the publication of a book, Borders and Belonging. And that book was the basis also of a project that took place in the context of Brexit. It's about a story, and it's about the story of Ruth, and it's about a lot of work with a lot of people. So tell me the story. Thanks for having me on, Pat. It's lovely to be with you. The Book of Ruth is an extraordinary short drama that you find in the Hebrew Bible. It's in four acts and it's written with a real um, artistry of drama. In the first act, we're introduced to the characters, really. There's a famine in Bethlehem and a family of mother, father and two sons leave and go to enemy territory nearby, but enemy nonetheless to Moabite territory. The father dies and the two sons marry local girls. And that's grand for 10 years. But then the two sons die of a famine that's come there. And so you have this trinity of widows left behind Naomi, the mother, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi decides she's going to go back to her home, to Bethlehem. And she would not receive a great welcome there, which she knew she wouldn't. Um, And Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I always get the impression that um, Naomi might have not have wanted of that. I I don't think Naomi wanted to live. She was a husk of a husk, it's described. Anyway, they go back. Um, Naomi, who now is calling herself Mara, meaning bitter, and her Moabite from Moab daughter-in-law, who keeps on being called the Moabite from Moab. Chapter two then is about Will, um, Ruth from Moab, be able to access social welfare. Will the marriage that she had to Naomi's son be considered valid because marriages between Israelites and Moabites were not considered to be valid? And really it's a question about will she have the legal access to social welfare that she should have um, been granted as a right? And what ways is her life and body in danger as she goes to access social welfare? Chapter three really is about her and Naomi having realized there was an opportunity for Ruth to make a a fortuitous marriage and putting some plots in place to make that marriage happen. And chapter four is about this man, Boaz, um, who she wants to get married to, but he's not the closest relative. It should have been someone else. And it's him kind of engaging in a little bit of legal manipulation, which plays on the prejudices towards Moabites in order for him to um, marry uh, Ruth. Over and over again, you see that the, the law is changed in the face of an experience of an individual displaced, widowed, border-crossing Moabite woman. And that you see that the, the text, it's like an extended parable, really, is a meditation on how in the face of a seemingly fixed law, that law can change in light of an experience of having somebody in front of you who is demonstrating loving kindness and where um, loving kindness is the true interpretive lens of a law. So that's the story of Ruth. And then you took that story along with Glenn Jordan, a a friend and dear colleague of yours. You used it in the Brexit context. Tell me about that. Well, in 2015, I was leading Corrymeela and the precursor to Brexit was happening. Nigel Farage from UKIP was making lots of noise. David Cameron was going back and forth. Questions about what a referendum would be were up there. It was clear that, you know, Britain as an extraordinary parliamentary democracy was going to use a referendum, which is usually used in a constitutional democracy. And that seemed to be bewildering because there was no legal mandate for any kind of information or facts. 
And this thing about what is Ireland, what is the UK, what is Britain, what is Irishness, what is Britishness, all of those things are up in the air. It was as obvious as the nose in your face to anybody in the North that questions about the North and the border were not going to be considered when it came to the big English questions about Brexit. And Brexit, in my opinion, I know Glenn shared this too, was primarily an English question, not a British one, but an English one. And the people of England are great and they have serious questions that they want to ask. But I would have rathered it be an English national question rather than something that incorporated the question about the border, the British border in Ireland. And so Glenn and I were talking and I said, look, what we really need is a story, a safe story, like a parable, like a drama that evokes questions of borders, questions of law, questions of religion and holds an identity and holds those in a, I suppose, a, a moral light for people to listen to. And, and I was saying, I think the Book of Ruth would be perfect. It's not an annoying book. There's no resurrections. There's no miracles. You're brought into the landscape of the story very quickly and very easily. It's like a piece of Shakespeare, really. Nobody knows who wrote it either. Which So it comes from this imagination. It's quite brilliant. And one of the things it does is it, it highlights that there are two territories, Israelite territory and Moabite territory, between whom there's enmity, long-standing enmity. And the things people say about each other there go way into the past and people have conflict about what the conflict was about. And so we thought this is the perfect way to talk about Irishness and Britishness, as well as Englishness and Scottishness and, you know, anxieties between Devon and Cornwall, anxieties between different jurisdictions of Ireland, anxieties within those jurisdictions also, you know, the Dubliners and the, the rest of the Colchis, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm from the People's Republic of Cork, so Cork. of course, you know, Cork and not Cork, as there is. <laughs> and you see ways within which sometimes for fun and other times with deadly impact, the, the tyranny of small differences that can happen in localities can be really serious and have to be taken very seriously. And we would probably have gotten caught up in what the proper version of the story was if we tried to take local narratives. Taking the Hebrew book of Ruth felt like a perfect example. We would explore, here's how the Bible shows resentment toward the Moabites. Do you think the Moabites told the story in the same way? What are the resentments you have against people from Scotland or England or Wales or the Republic or the North or the city or the countryside? What are yeah, the things your family held against each other? Yeah, because what happened was you and Glenn wrote different chapters on yeah. the book and then you took the show on tour, really. Isn't that right? It's more that we, we wrote some resources. There was eight resources that were just two pages each. And then we took the show on the road. So over the course of about three years, we met with 5,000 people in parish groups all across Ireland. Some of it was translated into Welsh. I was across doing loads of work in England and Scotland. And in civic halls, parish halls, festivals, political conversations, everywhere, we met with 5,000 people. Karimila is part funded by the Fund for Reconciliation from the Dublin government. And so we went to them to say, look, they were doing great community engagement. And some of that in community engagement did engage religious leaders, North and South, but there was nothing specifically catering to the religious community. And we were saying, look, if nothing else, if nothing other than population, those who attend a, a monthly religious service are the biggest club in Ireland, North and South. So we proposed to them that we'd do this and we proposed a certain amount that they'd fund, just a stipendary amount, really. And they doubled it. They said, this is great. Thank you. And then the Community Relations Council in the North, as well as an American fund, the Henry Luce Foundation, gave some money. And then we took that show on the road and basically Glenn and I took pages and books, really, of notes from the community conversations we'd had. 
You know, we'd ask people, what did you learn about the other um, when you were growing up, about whether the other was Ireland or England or the, the Brits or whatever, you know, the North, Catholics, Protestants, Nationalists, Unionists, whatever. And we, we'd ask people to talk about those things and say what the Book of Ruth asks us to do is to consider what might be a benevolent story that could save us. And this was not uh, an exercise in let's play nice with each other. This was an exercise in saying, what are the ways within which our ways of telling each other's stories has deeply wounded us? What are the ways within which negotiations about a trade deal are inevitably going to fail us if we think that is the culmination of British-Irish relations for 2020 or 2019 or whatever? How can we tell stories that are true, filled with pain, but also filled with possibility in the question of British-Irish relationships? Yeah, I, I was thinking you put a lot of faith in the story. The story of Ruth is a powerful story, but one of the problems in this whole Brexit thing are the narratives that came out that were not helpful. You know, a narrative of maybe a narrow nationalism of a little Britain that never was and was really powerful because exactly. it captured, you know, longing for a past going back there. How did you negotiate that? Well, I like the way you say it. You know, these days you hear marketing is all about story. You know, I bought a watch a couple of years ago and the fella, it was a Swatch watch. And the fella in the Swatch watch shop said to me, do you want to come to a Swatch watch party tomorrow? I was like, no. And then I was curious. I went, why? And he went, everybody there would be wearing Swatch watches. And it wasn't that we would only be wearing a Swatch watch. We'd be wearing clothes and Swatch watches. And then he said, and we can all tell our Swatch watch story. And I was like, under no circumstances. Like that party doesn't interest me at all. And I'm a man who likes a party. But you see the, story. the way with and yeah, it's, you can see the way a shallow reading of story is just being used for capitalist purposes. There, it can be used for manipulative purposes. In the story of Brexit, you can see a version of the past of Britain being told. The majority of people who are proclaiming the past of Britain would have been poor and despised their government in that past that's being spoken of. Do you know. You can see the same in Ireland, you know. I hear people telling the story of Ireland and the vid visit of Frederick Douglass to Ireland in 1845, him saying, this is the magnificent visit. I've been treated with such esteem, you know. My despised race in America is not despised here. That's a version of the past. And while that's true, Frederick Douglass's words in 1853, where he said the Irish-American, this is the eight years after the start of the famine, he said the Irish-American has um, taken on our avocation, meaning the black American. And he's saying the Irish-American is immediately upon landing, taking on a whiteness that was, you know, continuing on the very racism that Frederick Douglass had been um, advocating against in terms of advocating for emancipation. And so there's all kinds of ways within which the story we tell about the past can be used for manipulative purposes. And that's why we thought that the Book of Ruth is a fascinating one, because the Book of Ruth is an intervention. It is an intervention into a story of Israelite Moabite tension that was really like cancer, never going to die. It's just going to continue and to continue and to continue. And somebody decided what we need is a narrative that embodies in the story of two women, a story of the Israelite territory and the story of the Moabite territory. Naomi and Ruth really are narrative embodiments of national identities. But both of them have been grieved. Both of them have known great pain. Both of them have known great hunger. And both of them are looking for safety and survival. And both of them are saying the law and the way we speak about each other needs to change if mutual survival can be possible. And in that way, it is a profoundly moral intervention into a story about how 
populations tell stories about our nearest enemies. So you were in these different places in Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales, with groups, faith-based groups, reflecting. Always, yeah. yeah. We made it easy. We said, look, God isn't an annoying character. This is a Bible story, but it's not a conversion story. So it wasn't always faith-based groups, which was great. And even when it was in a church, there was loads of people that would come because, there's, you know, somebody would have said, oh, this is more political than it is religious. So... Sorry to interrupt, no, but that no, was a really important thing to say. Absolutely. Yeah. And you had then questions around it for the groups. I mean, what were the reactions, like standout moments or things that struck you? What did you learn, Porig? Well, so, I mean, we had, we ultimately had eight hours or eight sessions that were prepared. And Glenn would tend to do those sessions that were elongated over many sessions. I would tend to do the one-offs. That was the way it worked. It was Glenn's full-time job with Corrie Mila as public theologian to do this, whereas I was still leader at that stage. So I was able to do the one-offs, whereas he was able to do the ones that would involve going to the same parish or the same place for six or eight weeks in a row. One of the things we discovered was a deep appetite to know a kind of a hop, skip and a jump through British Irish history, especially when we went over to England. It was rare that I ever met anybody in England who'd read the Good Friday Agreement. And we'd say to people, look, if you simply want an example about this is how elevated language about Britishness and Irishness can be, have a read of it. If for no other reason than seeing this should be a standard not whatever had been coming out of Downing Street that, that day or the day before, or whatever Nigel Farage had been tweeting or whoever, you know, Preeti Patel or any of them, you know, we were shown over and over again, both from politicians as well as from tabloid headlines, quite how dangerous the stereotyping of Irishness um, in light of how annoying Ireland was being about the border in the Brexit project. We were, we were seeing how quickly language could denigrate into something that we know to be dangerous. And so um, sometimes it was that, you know, sometimes what we were aware of is that people needed to find and have opportunities to talk about why they had voted for Brexit, what was in their heart, what was in their desire, what had moved them. And they might have said, I might have voted for the wrong thing, but nonetheless, what, what was in my desire as an English political movement is still very valid. And that was really helpful to put that out there in an atmosphere where there's Brexiteers and Ramoners or, you know, whatever, you know, people accusing the other of being prejudiced or people accusing the others of being middle class snobs or whatever. All of this stuff going back and forth was all a demonstration of the failure of language. And one of the things that we were trying to do was to use a story where you could look into the story and engage and um, there's a there's one particular character in the story in chapter four who it's easy to categorize. The the story actually does categorize him. He was the nearest male relative of of Ruth's dead husband, and technically he was the one that should have married her. And the text doesn't give him a name. It calls him so and so or what's his face or <laughs> your mano, you know. And so the text itself almost makes him like a pantomime character. But we would spend some time with him sometimes to say. If you were him, what would you, how would you narrate your story? And he was a great small opening into ways within which a person's fear can dictate the way that they act and imagine. And then to say, is a person to be blamed for their fear? Is their fear accurate? Who's manipulating that fear? What's going on? What would you want to say to him if you could? And sometimes using these characters, knowing the story, but then using them as a blank canvas to have a conversation with could mean that people were able to say very subtle things about their political and civic aspirations without saying Ramoners, Brexiteers, middle-class assholes, all those, whatever it was that people are saying that 
all of which was a failure because it was ceasing the possibility of understanding each other. I trained in conflict resolution, as had Glenn, and I am often enough less interested in agreement than I am in understanding, because I think disagreement, proper disagreement, can only happen when we have understood each other. And regularly what we have is people who haven't understood each other caricaturing each other's point of view. And that is a failure and that will only lead to more failure. And what we do need is to understand what were you voting about? Brexit really is shorthand for about 10 issues. And to say, let's sketch out these 10 issues. What were you voting about? And then people could realize, oh, when we talk about Brexit, we're actually talking about different things. And if we can be a bit more focused, we will still disagree. That's important to say we will disagree with a little bit more insight into each other's point of view. And that was really, really helpful. And I think what struck me was, especially at sessions in England, I did one session in England and 500 people turned up and it was overwhelming to see such a, um, a deep desire to have public conversations about Britishness and Irishness and Europeanness and borders and change in a way that wasn't going to be using denigrating language. Yeah, because I think one of the things that characterised the Brexit debate was the lack of that depth and the lack of that kind of peeling away what might be going on underneath. Presumably the story gives people a chance to do that in a safer way, because very often where we come from is sort of like pre-conscious yeah. stuff that is activated and oh, that, yeah. you know, is not subject to some kind of rational scrutiny in a safe place that, as you say, may not change what we believe, but maybe highlights why we believe it. Exactly. I mean, there's a story in my family that when I was five, because we're an Irish speaking family, not all the time, but certainly I've been looked after for two years before I was five by a woman who had no English. She was from Ballyneer Therig in West Kerry. And so it's a story that I asked my parents, why do we speak English? <laughs> you know, why aren't we speaking Irish all the time? And immediately that's a political education. You know, I think they said to me, there's a place called England and they like to go places. And I thought, well, I like to go places. You know, how do you explain that? And thereupon begins A, an understanding of Irishness, but B, an understanding of England and Englishness. And that is... Um, almost primordial when it goes into you at that level, when it comes to the question of this place called England, as if that's just, just one place. England is many places with many histories and many futures as well, and many presents. And so uh, there was a way within which what we were trying to do was to highlight those for people, as well as to interrupt ways within which narratives of blame about British Empire or the eradication of the Irish language or the famine or the troubles or violent republicanism, etc., as well well as to intervene in those with stories of which one of your uncles or cousins or aunties was back and forth across to England. And actually, England was a place that did provide safety as well as training and community. What alongside the stories of pain are also the stories of reciprocal exchange? How and what are the avenues of gratitude that it is worthwhile amplifying not to just make nice and have daisy chains and sing pretty songs and think it's all grand, but to say in the absence of true stories of gratitude, we would probably never come up with anything that saves us. And I also don't trust governments who are ultimately interested in staying in power to be the ones to create moral narratives that are about the possibility of saving us. One of the enlightened parts of the Good Friday Agreement is that it recognises when it comes to the sovereignty of the island of Ireland, that actually that is not the jurisdiction of a government. It is 
to the people of Ireland to, to decide the question of the sovereignty of Ireland. And in a spirit of concord, shared heart, we are drawn together into a civic imagination. And I think that is an extraordinary recognition from governments of the limitation of governments when it comes to the question about politics. And I think that is quite brilliant. And what we needed a Brexit debate that was done in that kind of a spirit, but it wasn't. It was done in populist imagination, um, lies, broad sweeping caricatures that divided people and actually kept those people who orchestrated that debacle out of the limelight and out of critique. And I suppose what we were trying to do was Cory Melo was keen alongside lots of other groups doing the same kind of thing to say, we can say how you should have voted. We can't undo the vote, but we can try to find a way to talk together wisely. And in light of the fact that it's inevitable, really, that between five and 15 years time, we're going to have a border poll. We will need the same kind of civic dialogue to continue about Britishness and Irishness, North and South, the Good Friday Agreement. We need this on an all-Ireland level continuing. Brexit was just the beginning, and we will need to do that in a deep way. What happened there, as, as you describe it, and as we all experience Brexit, has given rise to already talks about United Ireland border polls. It is, it seems to me, a really important thing that we can contextualise and tell the different complexities of the story, because often in those stories, as you've pointed out, it's not just that maybe somebody's granny went over to England and got a living, but like say even in the North, there were people who were say maybe pro-Republican violence and action who maybe had relatives who were in the British Army. Exactly. And you know, and the thing was you couldn't look at that, that, that would not be mentioned because of the, the guilt or the blame. And when, you, when that happens, it seems to me when we can't lay all the cards on the table, pull out all the strands out of the ball, then it's much easier to become them and us or the yeah. other and blame. Whereas with, and I totally accept the point that we don't have to necessarily end up changing our position, but if we can do it in a way that allows for the understanding of everybody else's position as well, because they all come from a context too. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to questions about safety, this is particularly in the north, but not only in the north, all the border counties too. Suddenly you're talking about 12 counties and then Dublin and Cork and Limerick. You get, you've got strong feeling about Ireland there. It is not too far under the surface before you find lamentation and rage when it comes to the question of Britishness and Irishness. And so therefore facts alone and valid and verifiable facts are very important, but facts alone are not the kind of things that will save us. What we need is a way within which the facts of the past and the telling of the past can be engaged with in a way that is creative to a question about a civic politic and a civic citizenship and paying attention to questions of change, as well as all of the populations of people who are Irish, who don't give a damn about Britishness and our, our Irishness, who don't care about the border. I do deeply. But I have to recognise that there's plenty of people in Ireland who don't, you know, if it came to a question of a border poll, their question probably wouldn't be what way will they vote, but whether they'll vote at all. And I suppose we have to recognise that the things that some people care about are not the things that other people care about. And that can engender deep rage in populations of people. And the question will be, given that we know that, how do we talk to each other? How do we have a public conversation where we recognize in politics, in art, in grief, and in public conversation, 
the power of these conversations. Just near to where I live, there's a graveyard. And in the graveyard, there's three graves, God rest them. And on the graves, it's written, murdered by terrorists. And those graves are mostly from the 80s. I think of the parents going to those graves, those poor parents bearing witness to the truth at the tragic and criminal end of a life through a gun in the name of somebody's imagination of a country. And that is the kind of thing that we know for decades and centuries of the arguments about Britishness and Irishness leads there to graves of people who shouldn't be in graves. And can we find a way to do something better? And that, I think, is a very exciting project. Glenn and I are both from the Republic. You know, Glenn's from Bray and I'm from Cork. And partly for us as two men who were living in the north. Partly for us, for us was an all-Ireland question. Often I think folks in the Republic might think that questions about that are particularly the jurisdiction of the north, but actually they're not. Questions about what, what's the shape and the story of and the invitation and the pain of Irishness on the island of Ireland, that's something for all of us to be involved with. And I think recently our president, Michael D. Higgins, published a very interesting article in the oh, Guardian, yes. I'm not sure yeah. if, he would have got a, if he would have got it published here in Ireland, but he got it published in the Guardian. And already, you know, there was predictable reaction against it from yeah. predictable sources. This is the kind of conversation we need to be having. It is painful and there needs to be a space, you know, when these things come up to talk what about, but not what aboutery. Yeah. That we can hear all the different positions from people who have suffered for a whole variety of reasons. You've got a model working here. Do you think that the Ruth Project could be used here in groups to, to continue the discussion about where we're going in the next five, ten years? Or do we need another story? Well, it's just one thing that's there that Glenn and I put together. The book um, has some group discussion questions at the end of it, mm. as well as prayers for anybody, any people who are interested in, the, in, in it through the lens of prayer. It's one way within which groups that are interested in, in an environment where you're taking, I suppose, a literary and a theological approach to a text where you can discuss that. It requires nothing in terms of what people believe about God or religion, but what it does ask is attention to a text. And I suppose that can be um, any text and any art is a is a possibility for an imagination to expand. So we would really hope that people would um, choose to use this book as a way to deepen their conversations. Carmilla, we've also started a podcast because obviously for 2021, the centenary of partition, we had an entire year of public events, lectures, weekends, you know, school resources, school visits, inter-school projects, none of which are happening now. So we put together a podcast exploring Britishness and Irishness. It's starting this week, actually. Um, Mary McAleese is going to be the first interviewee and we're interviewing scholars from both sides of the border as well as from across the water looking at Britishness and Irishness through the lens of history and theology and art and race and politics um, and gender and considering how in light of all the past can we find a way to live well with these um, flourishing questions of Britishness and Irishness today. Not saying that you have to choose one or the other but to find a way where we can speak well about each other in a way that, and by speaking well, I don't mean, again, making nice. I mean, speaking well in terms of um, something that's imaginative and fruitful and not addicted to violence or revenge.